Hey there, folks. This is Brian Husky in chapter three of my 2019 archery hunting essay. I'm jumping back in time a little bit with this chapter, reflecting on the circumstances that led me to the mountains where chapters one and two took place. So it's a bit of a skipping around in the timeline, but it'll all tie back together with where we left off in chapter two. So here we are with chapter three, High in the Mountains. Dry hole cost. It's a phrase that a wonderful and influential old timer in my life named Jack introduced me to. How much I'm willing to invest in any given venture before pulling the plug, as Jack described it. It was a term often used by oil drilling outfits, considering how long to drill before pulling out and trying someplace else. I contemplated various angles of this question when last December's elk hunting daydreams pressed me. Just where were my new daydreams going to take place? Should I stick with the zone I'd hunted the last two seasons? The area had more than enough elk, but hunting pressure was clearly trending in the wrong direction. I mean, how long was I willing to gamble each time I rounded that final corner to reveal a quiet, unoccupied parking area or a dozen rigs? Man, I can feel the tension of that moment in my guts just writing and talking about it now. I never had any direct conflict or issues with the other hunters sharing the woods together. It just didn't feel wild to me in the sense that I seek out wildness. I like to think I could step over a log and find something that no modern person has ever seen. It's like walking a trail versus cross country, camping in a campground versus undeveloped. I mean, for the most part, you're never going to find something incredible in one of those developed situations. And when I'm out in the boonies, I just want to be alone, undisturbed, uninterrupted. Heck, I'll take a place with one single elk and no people versus a place with thousands of elk pursued by handfuls of hunters. My hunt is, after all, not for elk. It's for satisfaction and quality of experience. It's the pride of accomplishment and the dodgy reward of more than breaking even on a big gamble. And these things are all bolstered by pulling them together from scratch. It's like scratch hunting in the sense of putting my own fingerprints on every ingredient of the final product. From the mouse click scouring maps and Google Earth to the summertime scouting trips to the yays or nays of what's found along the way, all the way to picking up my bow under the dimming stars of opening morning. These are all elements that I love about being a do-it-yourself solo hunter, and each element has added tremendously to my past experiences. Opportunities to talk with several of the newcomers last season gave way to understanding of why the strange uptick in hunting pressure occurred. The folks I talked to described how they had each reached out to fishing game biologists in the region who directed them to this particular area. It was a reality that I could understand, although I found incredibly unlucky given that I'd been there for one season in that spot with almost no other people or vehicles encountered before it turned into something of a zoo. It's true that the area had an incredibly healthy population of elk and quite frankly was underutilized by hunters, so the recommendations totally made sense. I accepted the circumstance and reluctantly, once again, let go. And so ultimately for 2019, I decided to pull all my chips, a fortune in first-hand experience and wealth of bull elk numbers, from this great known spot to gamble somewhere else. Yet I had no idea where that somewhere else would be. 
It was foolish by any angle for me to bail on the zone that I'd been hunting with so much success over the past years. I mean, all told, I discovered over a dozen fantastic places to hunt over my 18 years of hunting in Idaho, yet I felt forced to leave nearly all of those places because of gobs of people showing up. So the early months of 2019 found me pondering where to go next. And by July, the honing process was well underway. Places I'd explored on Google seemed like sure things. I took extensive measures reaching deep into the backcountry. From my computer screen, I'd venture miles up dirt roads, more miles up single track trails, more miles cross country, up thousands of feet of rugged ridges to what I would have guessed would be elk nirvana. And when I got there in person, I found nothing. They sucked. There were strange observations along the way. Well-established and beat-down game trails without any tracks. Old bleach rubs, but none from recent years. Zero sign, old or new. Not even old crumbly white elk shit could be found. And then I found it. Fresh tracks from a pack of wolves. I was sincerely perplexed. How was it possible for such incredible habitat to be totally void of elk? I mean, yes, there were a handful of elk. Reaching the mountaintop meadow where I'd actually spotted herds of elk on Google Earth, I did indeed find a group of cows. And that's where the wolf sign was. But the fact that in all these miles of getting there, passing through what I'd absolutely call perfect habitat, I didn't see a scrap of sign was troubling to say the least. I was at a total loss for explanation. During the epic 12-hour trek, I kept repeating in my head that it seemed shameful to be in such incredible habitat that was totally vacant of critters. Maybe the wolves really had knocked the shit out of the elk in these areas. Maybe I'd just been lucky that in all my previous seasons of hunting in Idaho, the wolves had just not yet taken their toll on the respective herds that I was sharing with them. I pondered a slice of humble pie, sincerely considering if I'd been wrong all along in dismissing the anti-wolf community as simply ignorant haters. During this period in late August, I almost caved. I considered returning somewhere that I knew there were elk, albeit a grip of hunting competitors too. This initial scouting trip had left me skeptical in my decision to relocate. My second venture into promising looking elk areas left me flat out depressed with the lack of elk sign, much less actual elk. But the thought of seeing headlights appear in the valley below me as I packed my bag and departed my camp one more time scared me straight. The memories of ATV motors rumbling in the distance triggered a gag reflex. I couldn't go back to where I'd been hunting. My resolve was locked, and pulling up stakes is something I'm all too familiar with. Plus, I've always described how hunting season is the time of year when I can really get out and explore this great state I call home. It's when I can find interesting places, variations of landscapes, transitions of vegetation, get new soil under my fingernails, and come to know more of Idaho. Sure, I could have almost 20 years of experience if I'd been hunting the same place at this point, and have the elk patterned and understood so well I'd practically be shopping the aisles of a familiar grocery store each season. While there is great appeal in knowing how to hunt an area that well, I do what's ironically least productive for my hunting success. I seem to move every time I really get a spot figured out. 
But I do feel like I'm searching for something. And one of these years, I'll find a place that I can call the spot. A place so great, I'll deem it the best and look ahead to taking my kid or kids there when they are old enough. That is, I suppose, what I'm ultimately searching for, I think. So the archery season of 2019 did indeed find me packed into a whole new area for my elk hunt. I'd loaded my pack with tent, sleeping bag, and pad, my small burner stove, food and water, and all the fixings of a backcountry spike camp. I was excited for lodging in the midst of elk I would be hunting. Getting an especially heavy load up to the elevation where I'd hoped to camp was a great and worthwhile effort. What a joy to be sitting at my camp, glassing the surrounding canyons as the sun set, a time that I'd often be commuting back to camp somewhere I'd parked my truck. Elk began to bugle as soon as darkness fell, and by 2 a.m. I'd still yet to fall asleep. I was simply too excited. I'd begin to doze off, but a distant elk sound would trickle into my tent and I'd pop up wide awake like I'd been slapped in the face. By early morning, a storm began raging outside and sheets of rain pelted and lashed at the rainfly. The rain seemed to surge over my camp in waves like an exposed rock along an ocean beach. Wind and rain would engulf my tent for a few moments and then recede to quiet. During these quiet periods, I could hear elk apparently unbothered by this weather. Each time the storm would pause, I'd listen hard and hope the storm would pass. But each time the rain would return and I'd cuss the disruption of getting to listen to the elk and imagining what was going on. Then I'd also hope that the final push had rain and passed and it would start to calm and dry off outside. I certainly was not hoping to spend my day hunting in the pouring rain and returning to sleep in a soggy sleeping bag. But no such luck. It was after two when I'd checked my watch last, but I did eventually doze off to sleep. By 5.45 in the morning, heavy rain woke me up again, and I simply gave up on sleeping. Very much to my surprise, the elk were still partying outside despite this weather that felt appropriate more for the Oregon coast than this Idaho high country. I sat upright in my sleeping bag, getting fully dressed, packed, and ready to roll, listening to all the manners of the elk socializing. I heard bugles from several bulls, some mature and some very immature sounding. I heard cows chatting, bickering, and meowing. I heard hoofbeats of a group that wandered close enough downwind of my tent to get my wind and spook. It sounded like an absolute circus of elk activity was taking place just behind the millimeter or two of coated nylon layers of my tent. With so much time to spare, I took the rare luxury of actually cooking breakfast. Sitting in my tent in the dark and out of the rain, I arranged my tiny burner just outside the tent door and fixed up a triple helping of oatmeal. I was in a hurry to get the burner turned off so I could hear as much as possible and calculate where the elk sounds were coming from and just what it sounded like they were up to. I pulled the zipper quietly and eventually made my way out of the tent just to stand and stare into the fuzzy gray atmosphere, listening to the raindrops pelt off of my jacket and tent while elk verbalized close enough I was sure they were within view if only daylight would quit dragging its feet and just arrive already. 
It felt like forever for the clock to move and the slightest hint of light to stay in the eastern horizon. The thick clouds and fog of the storm delayed early light of morning even further. But finally, morning reached a state where my eyes could see the geometric seams, the zippers, and poles of my tent without any of the lights turned on. I stood next to my tent, spooning bites of hot oatmeal, and watching the sky begin to reveal blotchy details of rain-swollen clouds, mixing with the faint lightness of morning like the first few stirs of separated yogurt. The rain led up. It was so great now to listen freely. It was wild and crazy to literally be knocking an arrow before taking a single step from camp. But as the light began to reveal the world around me, I got after it, swinging around to the downwind side of the majority of the elk I was listening to. That first morning's hunt was a dandy and set the tone for what much of my time in this area would be like from elk camp. What a dream! And far enough off the beaten path, deep enough into the woods, high enough into the mountains, that the scourge of ATVs could not spoil my fun, nor even enter my mind, which in itself is a priceless feature of any place. Throughout the season, my four trips packing into this spike camp, I was delighted with elk encounters that left lasting memories. And I was introduced to many bulls I came to know by name. Big bulls largest of which was a clean 6x6 that easily topped 350-inch measure. I spotted him one morning after trekking a solid 10 yards from camp and looking into the bowl-shaped fork of a major canyon. It was gray enough in the pre-dawn light that I nearly blurted out loud when I spotted him and his eight or so cows. Given that I was more or less blinking the sleep out of my eyes and just admiring the glow of sunrise developing over the mountain range to the east, I'd been hearing bugling in the system of canyons below and just getting a feel for where the respective bugles were coming from. I was startled to hear some sounds just below me and looked down to see this string of elk only 150 yards away. At first glance, as dark as it still was, I had no idea how big he was. But I saw where the herd was headed and made haste to drop into the bowl, which I came to call the toilet bowl. There were several springs that flowed from an open slope, maybe four or 500 yards from camp. I scurried down a primary game trail to intercept the group and had closed the gap to just over 100 yards from the elk. Reading terrain and anticipating wind currents is a vital component of archery hunting and to some degree can make or break shot opportunities. A steady breeze was in my face. However, the falling thermals of early morning mixed which direction could be considered safe. This was all compounded by the circular bowl shape of the topography, which led to a general counterclockwise swirl of scent within the half-mile bowl. Hence the name Toilet Bowl. I watched in disgust as the cows began to lift their noses into the air, learning of my presence and sounding the alarm to flee the area. The cows lined out and ran, with the bowl in tow. I watched in amazement as I came to realize just how huge this bull indeed was, given that when I initially spotted him, I guessed him being nice, but not a huge bull. I pulled my camera from my pack and took some video of this magnum as he bugled and casually followed the group of cows he was obligated to follow, even though he never actually caught my wind himself. The next day found me settled near a spring a few miles from camp. 
It was mid-afternoon and a host of physical ailments prompted me to take a break from covering ground. I'd picked out a perfect blind location, centered inside a cluster of trees with perfect shooting lanes into the grassing meadow, which a cold spring-fed water seeped from. My pack served as a perfect reclining pillow, and following an hour or so in this position, I dozed off to sleep. Dreams were beginning to take over my thoughts when I was startled back to consciousness by the sound of a blue grouse flushing. My thoughts instantly recalled earlier in that day when I'd observed a group of elk flush grouse, something that I'd pondered and taken note of, previously wondering if grouse held or flushed by passing animals that they knew were not a threat to them. So as the grouse woke me from my nap, something's coming was the first thing that ran through my head. And knowing now what I'd just seen, that it could indeed be elk. I sat up and repositioned myself over my bow that was leaning against the tree next to me. Sure enough, within moments, a cow elk rose into view from below where I'd heard the grouse flush. She and two others eventually made their way up to my location, browsing along and just doing their thing. I was filled with hope that a bull accompanied the group, but one never appeared. The cows actually bedded down in the grass just across from my location. Not wanting to shoot a cow yet at this point in the season, I enjoyed their company as live decoys, if nothing else, hoping a bull would join them. I'm sure there was a bull somewhere in the area, but he never emerged. I was grateful for the learning opportunity, though, and this new awareness to listen for the sound of grouse as indicators of approaching critters. So what about those wolves I mentioned at the end of chapter two? I have come to form a hypothesis on the subject, for what it's worth, and I feel pretty confident in my findings. Without taking the time to do any research or get exact timelines, I'm going to throw some approximate numbers out here, so keep that in mind. But my brief history of wolves in Idaho goes something like this. Let's say approximately 20-some years ago, wolf reintroduction began in parts of Idaho. Over the following years, these wolves did indeed annihilate elk herds. The elk of the day had no idea how to survive around these new, high-performance predators that were suddenly introduced to their world out of nowhere, and their numbers tanked. I'm going to make another approximation here that on average, let's say elk live 7 to 10 years or so. So that first generation of elk really did take it in the shorts. Fast forward to where we are today, though, and the elk herds have had a few generations before them to kind of get things sorted out, to evolve an understanding of what to expect and how to live around wolves. I think that the elk of today are better equipped to coexist with wolves than the population of elk that first had wolves introduced to their world. I know I've made my position pretty obvious that I'm not a wolf hater, and I'm sure I've pissed some people off with remarks of how I viewed those who are wolf haters. So, in full disclosure for the record, I personally have no interest in hunting wolves at this time. I think that they are an added part of a wild experience in the outdoors. For me, they bring a new component that feels pretty rad. But it's totally true that I have a hardcore predator hunting background. I'm immensely proud of my predator calling and hunting skills that I developed as a small child along with fur trapping with my father. So I'm no weenie who doesn't have the stomach for that kind of hunting. I've just personally grown out of it at this time in my life. However, if at some point I find a need to participate in wolf management, 
You bet. I'd certainly consider carrying a wolf tag. I'm just not convinced it's the dire situation that some would suggest, at least not in the dozen or more locations where I've extensively hunted to date, from Riggins all the way to Arco. And what I so often see represented as part of the anti-wolf movement is just ignorance coming from so-called sportsmen and women that I question, that don't quite impress me as anybody I could frankly admire. Smoke a pack a day, save a hundred elk, shoot a wolf, those are simply emotionally driven hot-button propaganda whistles in my book and appeal to the most shallow understandings of what big picture nature and wild ecosystems are all about. Flip the coin and I also see glaring faults in what so much of the pro-wolf advocates are made up of, in the sense of gathering a bunch of purely anti-hunting activists to band together and bolster wolf advocacy is silly and entirely faulty. I find it equally hard to trust that reasonable perspectives on wolf management can come from those who harbor extreme anti-hunting views. That just does not work. A kill em all wolf hater and save every poor animal wolf advocate simply do not bring value to the discussion, not in my opinion. Just as the extreme fringes of our political world bring 10 times more harm than benefit to the conversation, while independents in the center long for a civil dialogue and a better life for all. I mean, that's what I want, a better experience for all, elk and wolves. I've always thought it could happen, and from what I've seen over almost two decades hunting in Idaho, the critters are sorting things out and finding that balance. So following my season hunting in an area renowned for being overrun with wolves, my takeaway is that the elk numbers are rebounding. From the longest lasting form of elk sign, that'd be rubs, it was evident to me that in this area, there were more elk present this year than last. I saw far more fresh from this year rubs than all of the past one, two, three-year-old aged rubs combined. And I listened with my own two ears as bull elk bugled back at a pack of howling wolves. And to that topic, I observed elk rutting behavior as good as any I've encountered at any time in any part of the state. The elk were not silent where I was at, and wolves were present. Just has been the case in every other place I've hunted so far in Idaho. I can totally buy into some level of impact, of rutting disruption over those first generations that encountered wolves. But I think the elk, and nature as a whole, knows what it's doing. And paired with hunting as a carefully managed tool, everything's going to be okay. Over the following days and trips to my toilet bowl, well... Actually, I should call it the Punch Bowl Spike Camp. I never saw that huge six-point again, although I stayed busy engaging different bulls in their harems of cows on a regular basis. I never encountered mule deer like I'd hoped to find at this high-elevation paradise, due in part, I suppose, to the especially tough winters of late. It's ideal-looking big buck habitat, and I'd expect that with time, they'll repopulate eventually. I didn't ever lay eyes on the mountain goats either, although I did see goat tracks and sign on a regular basis. I did enjoy the surprise of a lone bighorn ram appearing above camp one night, something I was incredibly surprised, delighted even to see up here in my new favorite place, my happy place, high in the mountains. Until next time, thanks for listening and coming along. Coming up in Chapter 4, we'll head back to the Punchbowl camp as I bring my good buddy Ian along for what will be my last trip of the season. I hope you'll join us.